If you like music's greatest mysteries, you've got to check out Dan Rather's The Big Interview for some incredible true stories from the biggest names in music. Check out the podcast sometime. When you hear stories about your favorite musicians, the artists making music history, who's to say if they're tall tales or the truth? Music's Greatest Mysteries dives into these legends to find out what's real. On this episode, we see if Garth Brooks' epic hit, Friends in Low Places, was sold off to pay a bar tab. In country music's history, you would almost think there's no possible way it could be true. Then we'll take a look inside one of the most legendary diss track battles. People thought that Skinner hated Neil Young after that and vice versa. There was this incredible rivalry that never let up. And finally, how did Stevie Nicks' girlhood fascination with witchcraft shape her gypsy goddess persona? Nashville, Tennessee, the country music capital of the world. A destination for dreamers who become Reba's and Taylor's, Kenny's and Keith's. But Music City is also home to shattered hopes and lost opportunities. And from that divergent mix of success and failure, some of the strangest stories of country music emerge. There are moments in country music's history that uh, you would almost think there's no possible way it could be true. Such is the tale of the hit song, Friends in Low Places. Like most country yarns, this one features a struggling, troubled protagonist, a man named Earl Bud Lee. I know Bud pretty well. You talk about a character now. They broke the mold when they made this guy. Bud frequented several of the local taverns here in town. He just kind of marches to his own drummer, you know. On any given weeknight, you most likely catch Earl hanging out drinking with his friends. So the legend of Earl Bud, fittingly, begins at a bar. So happened that he and a buddy were at a bar, and they had run up a pretty significant bar tab. And when it came time to pay up, he didn't have the money. Earl jokingly said, it's OK, I have friends in low places, because I know the cook, and he'll spot us. The guy that was with him at that time said, hold up, that is a great, great title for a song, Friends in Low Places. And right there at the bar, on a napkin, they wrote the song, Friends in Low Places. But lyrics on a napkin are worth just that, a napkin. Earl Budd and co-writer Dwayne Blackwell need a singer to record their song. I mean, a song is everything, but it's also the performance of the song. The demo tape is how you hear the melody. You might read the lyrics on paper, but once you hear the way that the artist intended it for somebody to record, is how you know if you want to record it or not. Especially here in Nashville, just because you think it's great doesn't mean everybody else will think it's great. You know, it doesn't mean that it'll resonate with everybody else. In need of the right demo singer, the two remember a local boot salesman they'd met previously, a man named Troyle Brooks. Earl Budley and D. Wayne Blackwell were talking to the salesman who told them that he was a singer and he had moved to Nashville and he wanted to be a country singer and they liked him and he had a nice personality and he seemed like he might have a decent voice. 
they went back to him with their new song, Friends in Love Places, and said, hey, will you sing the demo for us? The salesman said two hours later, after finishing the demo, he couldn't get the melody out of his head. He kept singing the chorus and thought, man, I wish I'd found that song three weeks ago because he had just finished his debut album. And that guy was Garth Brooks. But two years later, nobody had released that song yet. So Garth Brooks went in and recorded Friends in Low Places. It becomes one of the biggest country songs ever. Garth Brooks went on to become one of the biggest stars in country music. It's easily his most iconic song, and it's probably the song of the decade. But what about the writer? Legend has it that before Friends becomes a massive hit, he sells his rights to pay a bar tab. Could this possibly be true? Coming up, we reveal the answer from the man himself, Mr. Earl Bud Lee. Is the legend true? Word by word, I'm going to tell you all about it. And later, the classic rock feud that creates a southern rock anthem. Ronnie Van Zant was just saying to Neil, hey, man, you're from Canada. Don't judge all southern people on the racism of a few. By 1988, Earl Budley is like many other unknown songwriters in Nashville. He's looking for that one breakthrough hit to strike fire and bring him success. He thinks he has the song, Friends in Low Places. He definitely has the singer, Garth Brooks. The problem is, Earl Budley is broke. It so happened that he and a buddy were at a bar, and they had run up a pretty significant bar tab. And when it came time to pay up, he didn't have the money. I think it was 1200 bucks, which is pretty noble in the fact that if you had a $1,200 bar tab, you probably had a pretty good time. Depending on who you talk to, right there at the bar on a napkin, he sold his half of the rights to friends in low places to anyone at the bar that would cover the cost of their bar tab. He settled his bar tab by giving his publishing to uh, this song, Friends in Low Places, that had just been cut by this young unknown artist. And uh, that come back to bite him in the butt. Just after Bud sells his rights, Garth Brooks starts selling records. First in 1989 with his self-titled debut album. He follows that up with No Fences, featuring the smash hit, Friends in Low Places. The song skyrockets to the top of the charts. It takes only eight weeks to reach number one on the Billboard Top 40, where it remains for a month. I honestly don't know that you could say there was a bigger song in the 90s than Friends in Low Places. It was as big as any rock song, any country song, from any genre. It's one of those songs that defines an era, it defines a genre. That's how big that song was. The song wins both the ACM and CMA Award for Single of the Year. And to date, Brooks has sold 18 million copies of the No Fences album. So what would be the value of Earl Bud's share? And what really happened that day at the bar? Are you ready to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth? For the first time on camera, Earl Bud Lee comes clean. That's the big question. Is the legend true? You better bet your life on it.
I started my drinking early in the morning. As soon as the bar opened, I was sitting there with my first vodka tonic and cigarette in hand. Here's the card. Buy everyone around. Come on. This is going to be fun. They gave me an ultimatum. Uh, you're going to jail because your credit card didn't work. Or you can pay stay out of jail. So I peddled the song around, and three publishers finally came together, and each of them gave me $400. And I paid the innkeeper, drove back, signed the contract, gave the song away. According to how they want to value it, I probably, you know, have lost a good 20 million, maybe. I ended up getting the Mona Lisa and then selling the Mona Lisa for $1,200 to pay a bar tab. There's two halves of a song, the writer's share and the publishing share. If he signed away his publishing to clear this bar tab, then he still gets the writer's credit, and he still gets paid for the writer's share. The airplay, I can tell you this, though. I made a ton of money on the airplay alone. So all is not lost in this tale. Earl Budd estimates he's earned almost $2 million for the writing credits on Friends. And he's had follow-up success, writing number one hits for George Strait and Blake Shelton. Today, Earl Bud Lee is still writing and performing in Nashville. But there's no more bar tabs. Earl Bud Lee is now sober. He made a living on Music Row, in large part because of what Friends in Low Places did that he gave away. So it's kind of like one of those stories where you know, whatever you give away, you get back tenfold. The song was just, it was lightning in a bottle. And God bless him for having written it, and God bless Garth Brooks for recording it. I'm blessed to have outlived that lifestyle, those years of drinking. And I've heard Garth in the past say, you know, with every blessing, there comes a curse. I sometimes ask the good Lord, why would you do this to me? And then at other times, I'm like, thank you so much for this wonderful gift. I sold a beautiful, beautiful piece of work to pay a freaking bar tab. Can you believe that? Music has always inhabited the pulse of political unrest, street protest, civil disobedience, war. At times, it functions as a battle cry. At others, an outlet for anger. But what happens when the animosity is between the artists themselves? When egos get entangled, cultures threatened, when it gets personal? Behold, the diss track. The reason we love diss tracks is because it gives us a peek inside what's going on in the drama of the musicians we love's lives. There's a long history of diss tracks. Joe Tex and James Brown, Tupac and Biggie, Ice Cube and N.W.A., Eminem and Everlast, even Paul and John from the Beatles. But the diss track people talk about the most is the Neil Young, Leonard Skinner one, because it's not about individual people. It's about a way of life. It's social debate. 
The legacy of the Leonard Skinner-Neil Young feud begins in 1970, when counterculture and social justice pioneer Neil Young criticizes the American South. His target, institutionalized racism and Confederate traditions, ideals that he thinks should be eradicated. Neil Young, in the beginning of 1970, got a taste for writing protest music and social commentary when he wrote the song Ohio after the Kent State shootings. All of a sudden, he wanted to continue to make that kind of commentary. So on the album After the Gold Rush, he did a song called Southern Man. And then on the next record, Harvest, he did a song called Alabama. Both of them are making reference to the South, the KKK, and slave owners. But many Southerners are outraged by Young's lyrics. Their mores questioned, their culture threatened. A Southern band named Leonard Skinner fights back. Skinner felt that he was painting with a very broad brush. They wanted to show that, no, the South isn't like that. We're here, and we don't need you to tell us about that. Why would he say that? A lot of people are like, man, I ain't apologizing to nobody. A lot of people interpret it differently. I love all people, and so did Ronnie. But I also understand why people are pissed off. Skinner's frontman, Ronnie Van Zant, escalates the beef with a personal and direct response to Young's anti-South songs, Southern Man, and Alabama. The result is the most famous diss track ever. Leonard Skinner came back when they wrote Sweet Home Alabama. It's one of those things where it is definitely a song of the South. It's a Southern rock anthem. Did that whole verse about a Southern man don't need him around anyhow. When you listen to the song, Ronnie Van Zandt sounds pissed off. He said, we don't want to be lumped in that all Southern people weren't alike. Everybody is different. And you know, there's a lot of great people down here in the South. Ronnie was a very highly intelligent man and a prolific songwriter. But he was just saying to Neil, hey man, you're from Canada. <laughs> don't judge all Southern people on the racism of a few. So people from the South really grabbed a hold of that and thought that Skinner had hated Neil Young after that and vice versa. They thought there was this incredible rivalry that never let up. Next, does tragedy prevent a truce? And does it also cancel an epic collaboration? Ronnie told me that Neil Young and Ronnie were going to get together and write a song. I get goosebumps thinking about the song that Neil and Ronnie would have written. And later, what's the mystery surrounding Stevie Nicks that has kept her so relevant for nearly five decades? She has that enigma attached to her. When she's on stage, she's the only person you want to look at. In 1974, Leonard Skinner releases Sweet Home Alabama, directly calling out fellow artist Neil Young by name, creating the most well-known diss track of all time. However, the animosity between Neil Young and Ronnie Van Zant may have been only for show. They definitely kissed and made up. They respected the hell out of each other. 
could just be a moment where, hey, I'm gonna take that and use that for inspiration. And I think that's what happened with the Skinner Neal thing. It was like, that was like something that was inspired. If you look on the last album cover, Leonard Skinner did Street Survivors before the tragic plane crash. Ronnie Van Zant, the lead singer of Leonard Skinner, he's wearing a Neil Young Tonight's the Night shirt right under his jacket. So the last message that he sent to us was, I'm a Neil Young fan. Ronnie told me that Neil Young and Ronnie were gonna get together and write a song, but Ronnie was killed, and so they couldn't. I get goosebumps thinking about the song that Neil and Ronnie would have written. I knew Ronnie, and I knew that Ronnie loved Neil Young. It's as simple as that. He respected him as a singer, songwriter. He was just addressing the one issue, which is don't blame all Southern men for a few that have racist views. Whether the perceived feud is rooted in personal anger or regional pride, the songs they provoke remain staples of classic rock. Ronnie Van Zant with Skinner and Neil Young would both go on to enshrinement in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. In the 1970s, mysticism and witchcraft finds its place not only in music lore, but also in its mainstream. Born out of this era is a whirling sorceress who works her magic on audiences around the world. Stevie Nicks' love of witches started when she was a little girl. She just thought they were cool. The imagery and the mystic part of the whole thing with moons and stars, she really likes black. And her fans thought, oh, she's this mystical creature. The mystery begins as a child, largely because of her rapid ascent from anonymity to superstardom. She starts singing with her grandfather at age four and performs publicly at 16. In 1975, at age 26, she joins an obscure outfit called Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood Mac didn't invite Stevie Nicks to even be in the band. They needed a guitarist. They invited Lindsay, and he said, how about my girlfriend? When Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham joined Fleetwood Mac, it was a great spark that Fleetwood Mac needed. They had already released a bunch of records, but nothing that was really, you know, hitting with a massive audience. Along comes Stevie Nicks, who is this beautiful woman who's petite and has this incredible voice that is different from anything that Christine McVie was going to be able to do as a singer. Shortly after, the band releases its first hit song, Rhiannon. Almost immediately, rumors abound about both the origins of the song and whether or not Stevie Nicks is practicing witchcraft. Coming up, we investigate the song and its bewildering singer. Watching her perform Rhiannon, it's like watching an exorcism because she is a person possessed. Stevie Nicks has been an iconic wonder in our musical lives for five decades. But in 1975, on Fleetwood Mac's first Top 40 single, she invites rumors of sorcery and witchcraft on the smash hit, Rhiannon. Rhiannon is a very mystical song inspired by a book that Stevie Nicks found long ago called Triad, about a woman being possessed by another woman. 
and it kind of rang some bells for Stevie. Watching her perform Rhiannon, it's like watching an exorcism. Because she is a, a person possessed. Stevie was mysterious. She would dress like a, like a gypsy almost. She'd always have all these scarves and everything. She would twirl around. She had a mysterious quality. To this day, that label continues to follow the gypsy princess, compelling her to answer questions about the wildest of rumors. Stevie Nicks built on this persona as this sort of witchy woman. By the way, she's come right out and said, I am not a witch, but she has that enigma attached to her. Maybe she cast a spell or two on us. Maybe the twirling, maybe I fell for some spell. I'll take it, Stevie, she's the best. Although she's not recording as much today, she still carries that edge of mystery. In 2014, she starred in an episode of American Horror Story, appropriately titled, The Magical Delights of Stevie Nicks. Along the way, she's made the most of her opportunity to become the voice of her generation, just as Earl Bud Lee, Neil Young, and Leonard Skinner all created anthems for their generation. All are a part of music's greatest mysteries. Thank you for joining us for Music's Greatest Mysteries, where we investigate the legendary mysteries surrounding the biggest names in music. Now remember, if you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Also, go ahead and leave us a review and don't keep the show a secret. Tell a friend. <laughs>